Hello friends and welcome to another episode of Pitch Masters with me, your host, Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to Ben Williams, former Marine, author of Commando Mindset and co-founder of Lupin. We talk about storytelling, being vulnerable, the benefit of making an audience feel uncomfortable and the time that he made a pitch to try and acquire England football manager Gareth Southgate. I hope you laugh as much as I did and if you can spare 10 seconds, leave me a review on your podcast app because it really makes a difference to me. Ben Williams, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm super excited about this. I've just finished reading your book, Commando Mindset, and we're going to talk a bit about that. But first, the question I like to ask all my guests is, how do you pitch yourself? God, great question. There's me preparing to (laughs) pitch my product and my book, and now I have to pitch myself. I'm a very values-driven, authentic, vulnerable person who has nothing much more to add than not really caring what people think and go on my own journey to be ensuring that I stay true to myself. Uh, And everything I do in my life is simply true to myself. And and that's how I sort of pitch myself. (laughs) Well, I like (laughs) that. Which is the first time. One of the hardest things, and I'm learning this more and more every day with myself, is you know, it's really hard to be truthful to yourself and about yourself and to be authentic because it does require vulnerability. And especially when you're a bloke and in a world where you're trying to be in like a position, I I personally find it really, really tough. I actually find it quite empowering. I I didn't used to. Um, I think since having spent some time in the military, which I'm sure will talk about in some way or another and you know doing some things in business and spending time with some incredible people I've become quite comfortable in my own skin I don't I'd like to say I don't really carry too much arrogance or ego and I'm only and that's why I kind of mentioned it how do you pitch yourself I I don't really care what you think of me that doesn't mean I'm going to be horrible or, or nasty but all I really care about is the people around me you know, are happy and well. And that really starts with my two children and my wife and then my wider family and, and friendship group. And I think I'm really comfortable around those people. So I don't have too many other people to impress. I feel like I've got enough life achievements under my belt now to be very comfortable in my own skin. And actually, I think there's something, that's why I use the word empowering around, well, I'm a tattooed mid-30s white alpha male marine. <laughs> and so I see it as like a responsibility to be quite open and vulnerable. And I don't just think that from a mental health angle around how do you help young men and women speak up, but more just I think there's a stigma and an expectation of what an ex-Marine is. And, you know, especially people like myself who have lived through the sort of war fighting eras of unfortunately Iraq and Afghanistan, that we, we, we come with a stigma and I'm and I'm quite proud to break down that stigma and just be who I am and show who I am. And and I think that's quite a nice thing to do. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to laugh at yourself, which I think a lot of people struggle mm. with. And and be vulnerable for the right reasons, not being vulnerable and authentic to say I'm vulnerable and authentic and you should buy into what I do. It's 
that's how I live my life. And yeah, I say what I think, but I also listen very intently to what other people think. And that, that from the Marines is one of the core values was humility. And I think that's the one that stayed with me most that allows me to, I, I believe, think in that particular way. And that's really powerful when we're pitching and presenting as well. But I wonder, do you think there's a there's a fine line between when we go and we talk to a bunch of people, either whether it's on stage or, or presenting to someone, we want to try and exude a certain confidence, I suppose, in ourselves. And sometimes we don't necessarily even feel that confidence within ourselves. Maybe you do, but lots of people don't. And so they almost end up masking them true selves so that they can come across as someone else in an effort to kind of sell a product. And obviously, if you go too far, you become a car used car salesman cliche kind of thing. But where do you think the middle ground is? There? How do you work that out? For me personally, I think I've, I've always been in battle with the imposter, um, which I can imagine most people sort of experience when they're pitching, you know, mm reading the faces do they mm. like what i'm saying do they hate what i'm saying are they taking on board what i'm saying whether you're pitching a product a, a service you're stood on stage talking to people and i think i i've personally carved that experience or ability to you know tussle with the imposter because they're there they're then they're not going anywhere and i think if you don't get nervous or uh have a little bit of anxiety before you're talking to a group of people or pitching something then there's there's probably something wrong you've probably gone too far in the wrong direction mm. where you're not affected by the nerves or the adrenaline rush and, and that part keeps you on your game if you're if you're not getting nervous in battle you know there's controlling nerves and then there's 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 using your nerves and but if you're not getting any at all you've become numb and that will naturally have consequences in your decision making. And I think it's the same when you pitch, whatever you're doing, you you have to ride on those nerves. They, I think they bring out the true character if you can channel them correctly. And I, you know, going back to that vulnerability part, I, my imposter's always present. You know, only yesterday I sat with part of the executive team from Sky talking about, you know, how we can move or, or use our product with them. And, that's quite an intimidating place to be. And I still think about, oh, am I going to get found out shortly? And last week I was on a panel at Bloomberg with everyone looking back from these massive tech companies asking me about the future of work and how do we structure our businesses to work in the hybrid world. And again, you sat there thinking, well, they'll soon find <laughs> out that I don't know. But you then ride that confidence, don't you? And also know you're there in that particular position for a reason and so it doesn't really become a game of do i get found out it's ensuring that you you use your nerves correctly and adrenaline in the right way to to pitch in the particular way you need to and i, I love it when when you asked to um do this podcast i immediately thought about oh all well, those wonderful people who are worried or scared about talking on stage and Public speaking is one of the biggest things that hold people back, you know, career development wise. I think it's actually something that stops a lot of great managers being brilliant leaders. You know, public speaking is not just uh, on stage behind some sort of mic talking to 200 people. It's also one on one. It's mm -hmm. talking to people in, about their career growth and 
their personal life and how they're getting on. So yeah, very roundabout long way of saying, you know, how I channel my nerves and always battling the imposter, but using that for good rather than seeing it as some devil on my shoulder, which is telling me I'm going to mess this up. And, and I like that adrenaline rush. I think when it goes away, I'll have to look in different ways to pitch or do something different because that means the rush is going. So let's get a bit more specific because I think there are people in their early careers who listen to this and they want to have the opportunities, but they don't put themselves forward because of, I think, two of those things there, imposter syndrome, which comes with negative voices in your head and also nerves. There's a bit in your book and you kind of just mentioned it in a sentence and I wanted to ask you a bit more about it. You mentioned that that you used to practice in the Marines. Something about before you went into battle, sort of getting rid of those voices in the head or, 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 or blocking with them or working with them. What was that? Yeah, so we, we talk about it as something called exposure equals composure. And um, you, you can never really block out the voice in your head that's saying run away or run towards it. it it's there. It's how you rationalize the situation. And even simple practices such as breathing, you know, everyone talks about breathing, headspace, calm, take deep breaths, box breathing. But in the military, you're taught to breathe in particular ways that allows you to focus and focus during extreme situations. Because when you're taking deep breaths in and they're not shallow, tiny breaths, but they're deep in inhaling, it, it is lighting up your brain in different ways to what it does when you're shallow breath almost fear breathing and deep, deep breaths, pausing, thinking allows that connection between your limbic system and your neocortex where you do more rational thinking to be able to think about the situation that sat in front of you. And that's, you know, some very extreme circumstances that we find ourselves in where the, the consequences are very severe. And so you need commanders who aren't going to the front with the rest of the team and scrapping it out as you can imagine maybe that would happen they dress back and even under the chaos of fire will not fire back they'll they'll assess the troop they'll look left they'll look right what does the lay of the land look like and that rationale rationale only comes through simple techniques and deep breath work and assessing the situation and actually taking in what you're seeing as opposed to almost peripheral blindness and that's what makes people quite effective in those situations and and it's no different to um, when you would find yourself maybe talking in front of 25 executives for the first time, it's how do I breathe in deeply and, you know, bring rationale to the situation as opposed to, oh, they're all judging me and this mm-hmm. is going terribly wrong. You know, look them in the eyes. Let them know that you're in control of the situation. What you're talking to them about, you know the most about. And even if they may have some feedback for you, you're the one who's up there for a reason. And look around the room and almost assess who you're talking to and breathe in and out your sentences and, and, and tiny little things like that. It's no different to combat. And interestingly, your body is in the same state during talking to people uh, or pitching something than it is in combat. It's just in a fight, flight or freeze mode. It's You close your eyes, your, your body doesn't know any different. The adrenaline rush is the same. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to teams and companies around listening to those responses as well. And when you know you're about to do a talk or you're about to say something in front of a group of individuals under demand or pressure, your 
you naturally release adrenaline and cortisol that then powers your limbs and what people don't realize is when your hands get clammy and you start to clench is you're actually preparing your weapons that that's what you're doing you're preparing your arms to flail around and protect and fight with or you're preparing your legs to run with and your heart rate increases your pupils dilate your you know your your throat your your mouth will go dry everyone gets the bowel movement when they need the toilet and that's another thing because adrenaline is shutting off those non-vital organs and it's keeping only the vital organs awake and primed but the response psychologically is oh this feels unusual i don't like this i hate this run away from this or or just get through my lines really quickly and, and then it'll all be over really quickly and we listen to our body in the completely wrong way and it's it's quite ironic because you'll be in that state of adrenaline you'll deliver whatever you deliver in in whatever way you deliver it whether it's fast paced and terrible or or slow methodical and you know authoritative then you'll come out the back of it and you'll either go oh that was a car crash but i'm so relieved it's over and you'll have another flux of in, uh, adrenaline throughout your body or you'll come off and go that's amazing they applauded i got some great feedback oh what a wonderful feeling and you get another adrenaline rush but the psychological situations change because it's over and it's probably more euphoric than anything else you're then listening to the the body going oh that was amazing what a great feeling it's it's like getting in the queue for a roller coaster oh nervous about the roller coaster do the roller coaster come off going that was the best thing ever (laughs) but people forget that that bit's on the other side of the success but we have to prime ourselves to be able to think in certain ways so we expose recruits we expose trained marines and you know all the way through the rank structure under high pressured situations in training environments again and again and again and again so when they hit combat they're as primed as they can be which means they're going to have more composure than if you just signed up on day one we gave you a rifle and said good luck see you in a few months and i hope i hope everything works out well for you and and that's it's such a simple thing but on that exposure equals composure as people listening to this now who do hold themselves back from talking more maybe it's a great example to use you know talking in front of people or or pitching in that particular way is the only way you're ever going to overcome essentially that fear is by continuously doing it again and again and again that's what that exposure is you expose yourself to the situation you expose yourself to your physical and psychological responses and then over time you become more composed in the situation can you be can you give us some more specific can you walk us through a breathing exercise so someone's about to go on stage or or maybe within the next 30 minutes and they think oh everything is shutting down in my body and really we know it's not but that's how you might feel and the heart's racing and they're thinking i know that guy ben said something about breathing um <laughs> what what's a real exercise can you talk us through it box breathing's Four seconds in, so you spend four seconds inhaling. Then you pause for four seconds. Then you breathe out for four seconds. And then you hold for four seconds. And then you repeat four times. Now, slightly different to in combat, if I caught my commander going, (laughs) you're probably going to be like, "Uh, we're all getting shot out here. Are we going left or right? Um, What that breath work is far more adrenaline- heat of the moment step back and think breath it's it's just deep take in and suck that air in and control the breath but box breathing is something i still use and 
it's great to be able to pull up examples as well. So when I when I left the Marines and not long not long worked with England football, I fortunately managed to continue doing some stuff with Gareth. I was asked to do his leadership tribute speech after the World Cup at the Savoy in front of 400 ex-professional players, press and pundits. And I got this phone call from Gareth's agent, Terry, um, a few months before the gig. And they'd not long come back from the World Cup in Russia. They had quite a successful tournament. Yeah. The Marines were quite involved. Um, our little team, which worked with them, were quite involved in it. There was a bit of press around it. And then I get this phone call from Terry, proper Cockney guy. He used to look after David Beckham. He's an amazing person. He's all right, mate, how's it going? And I, I genuinely, I think it's in the book, actually. I was on my balcony in my boxer shorts and a T-shirt or something. And, and I'm like trying to get signal. And um, he's like, what are you doing in the end of January? And when someone like that asks you what, you, what you're doing at the end of January, you know, your diary's wide open. Yeah, nothing week, at all, week, mate. Nothing, blank. <laughs> at the same time, trying to sound busy. That's, yeah. that, that's a fine balance. Like, oh, I think I'm okay, but let me have a look. Um, he's like, I've got something for you. What do you fancy to this? And he explained what it was. He was mm. like, would you like to deliver this speech for Gareth? The FWA Football Writers Awards are present- Association are presenting him an award on his his contribution to football so far. And I was like, wow, yeah, I can't turn that down. But immediately, we had months to go, immediately, mm-hmm. like the pressure set in and yeah. the stress and the worry. And it was going to be one of, and still is, one of my biggest talks I've ever done or speeches. And, you know, again, that imposter turns up. So like, there's far more decorated Marines and veterans that could speak about leadership than myself. You know, what gives me the right to do it? And that voice sort of started going around in my head. And I did find actually the like the last month in the build up to it was quite daunting. I knew who was going to be there. And we arrived and it was, we all got dressed up and we're on the top table, Gareth and some, you know, wonderful people who probably paid an exceptional amount of money sit on that table and, and Gary Lineker. <laughs> and um, someone said to me who was organizing the event, right, so you're going to be on after Gary Lineker. And I was like, so Gary Lineker's doing my warm-up. Like, yes. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, is this genuinely happening? So I was like, okay. And I had this, I didn't want to do a joke, but I thought I'm going to have to sort of try and get the room on side a little bit. So that's a big one as well. Trying to do comedy uh, uh, when you're not a comedy person, when you're not... <laughs> When you're not a comedian, That's dangerous man. Oh, it's so dangerous. And I'd I'd written this joke down, and it was waistcoat related. Gary went up and did his speech, and because he's done this time and time again, <laughs> I wish you you should have seen me. So I'm there, and I felt like my collar was slightly on tighter. So I felt like my head was redder, and the world was. Ju- I was just like, and all this free wine. Everyone's like, drink as much as you want, enjoy yourself. My wife is getting on it, and I'm like, no, no, I've got to stay sober, otherwise I really will not get this right. That's a good and tip right there, I think. You did well. I had one, just to take the edge off. That's, that, that that's took all right. the edge off, and then I could concentrate. And then Gary went up, and he did this amazing waistcoat <laughs> joke. It was just about, he bought weight. It was something like he bought waistcoats back into fashion. And it was verbatim what I was, I was like, and Gary bought waistcoats. And I grabbed my wife's arm and was like, I looked at him, and she looked at me because she's heard this speech a million times by this point. 
I, I, I was like, isn't it my joke? And she's like, I know. Oh, oh what are you going to do? So I'm sat there thinking the only good thing about my speech is this one waistcoat joke. <laughs> so I went up there and I sort of, I sort of scrunched my paper and like put it down. And I started to do this speech. It's on YouTube. Every now and then I watch it and cringe. Oh, I'm uh, going to watch that. I I'll didn't... send it to you. If, if you want an example how not to pitch, there is. <laughs> this is where you cut your teeth. And um, I'm delivering a speech that's going really well. And then I, I tripped over my words and it sounded like I said the C word. <laughs> so that was it. We were talking about running the England football team from the common land where we were train- training them back to camp. I'm going to say it really clearly on the mic. Back to camp. But what it sounded like was cump. Right. right? So I said right. cumper. And then because of the way I talk, I realised that it went so quiet and cold. And the first person I looked at was my wife. And she's looking back at me and I was thinking, oh. uh, so you can hear me on the video go, I said cumper, camper. That's what I meant. And everyone laughed, and I thought, oh, "I've got them now. That's great. It's That's like, all right. Natural- yeah, I've got them." And then I was moving on to uh, Gary Lineker's joke, which he'd nicked. Yeah. And then I just, I just gently went through. It. I was like, "Oh yeah, something about waistcoats," but that's been taken. And the way I pulled it off, I had the room. They were gone. No. And that, by that point, I was, I was in my flow. So my top tips are box breathing and ridicule Gary Lineker on stage, and yeah. everything else afterwards feels quite fine. But you know, strangely, there is there is actually, you know, something within that. And I know this won't be comfortable for most, but if you can make the audience feel at ease, mm. you'll naturally make yourself feel at ease. And I think that's something that I come against in a, uh, in a backward way. I am the Marine with the tattoos who comes on. And so when it goes deadly quiet and everyone's just staring at you, I think to myself, oh, they're judging me. But mm. actually, probably deep down, they're all going, oh, that's the Marine. I hope you don't pick on me. He's a bit scary. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit scary. And so it's trying to find a way to make them feel at ease that will naturally make you feel at ease. And that might be a joke or it might be, you know, an icebreaker or a clever way to just make them go, oh, you're not going to pick on me and you're not going to ask me questions most people try and make the audience feel comfortable or at least get them to warm towards them. But you do this thing uh, called suspicious minds, right? Yes. And that seems kind of counterintuitive. Tell me about this bit. Cause I was, I've never heard anyone try and make an audience feel quite that way before. Well, so I, I have to small print this. So if you just had, you know, one of the biggest thought leaders in the world on your podcast, I assume you're, listenerships probably going to considerably raise over the next few weeks so if i'm telling all my secrets and no one wants to book me anymore because they've heard suspicious minds i will pick it back up with you this this is abundance not scarcity right we're sharing everything we've got (laughs) so if you're listening and you would like to experience suspicious minds this is what happens and how it works with me (laughs) um so suspicious minds came around from a complete i feel nervous i don't know what to do i'm going to make them feel nervous and um, so eh, eh, most talks I used to do workshopping, uh, and I did a couple recently actually where I've done it again, where I'll introduce myself, a little bit about what we're going to do today, and then I bring up a picture of Elvis. And, you know, everyone know who this person is. Yeah, it's Elvis. There's always someone who doesn't know. Um, but maybe that's we're, we're moving through our generations. It's now, true. Right? You can't really blame someone. He died in what seventy-seven. Yeah, so like, some guy. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, 
bring up the picture, you know, everyone happy. And I say, so basically what's going to happen next is um, someone will be picked at random to come up here, take the microphone off me. And the next slide, which I'll click, is the lyrics to Suspicious Minds. And it's a cappella. There's no backing music. And you're just going to have to sit there, you know, we're caught in a trap. And I'm really, you will do the three minutes and 27 seconds of it. Okay. Telling the audience, like, there's no get out of jail free. And you're a Marine, right? They're, yeah. they're like, they if he tells mess. me to, I'm going yeah, to Yeah, they don't. You know, like, you're not going to do the first 10 seconds here. You're doing the full lot. And I love it. And then you just leave them with that feeling of like, brilliant. So you'll get what, what I often get is, it's usually the women as well. It's, I love it. They, they'll just eyeball you and like, yeah, go on and pick me. Oh, wow. So, yeah, all the time. And you think it's the men. It's not. It's the women. I dare you to pick me. And so you kind of avoid their eye contact. And then, <laughs> and then you've got quite a few people who will be looking at everything else but uh-huh. you. And so you've got those two par- you know, things going on. Um, but then what I say is, but I'm not going to pick you. You're going to be picked at complete random. And in fact, one of you has already picked yourself. And then you kind of oh, see him get a bit more like how. And then I explain. So before any of you came in this room or if you went out for your coffee break, I put a sticker under one of your seats and and it's a round sticker that just says the word you on it. And in a minute, you're all going to check under your seats. And if it's you who sat on it, you'll be coming up to do it. If you're sat next to the seat with no one on and you check and it's there, you're the person coming up. And so you see people start to shuffle around and like stop them. Well, hands on the tables. Anyone caught peeking will be immediately told to come up and do it. And so everyone's like, oh, I don't want to be that person. Uh, kind of treat them like harsh, recruits. Man. I know, right? It's harsh, but it's five minutes of rest for me because I'm not then sat there like, <laughs> I'm getting yeah. them to be like, yeah. oh, this is worrying. And then, um, then I'll just completely long it out for about, I say five seconds and it usually goes on for 30 seconds of countdowns and they're all sat there looking at me. You see them getting annoyed and fidgety and the bald ones you can see sweating. And then five, four, I get down to one. Okay, check. And then the rumble begins and everyone stands up and they check under their seats and they're looking around. And then one by one, you see them. You see them go from, like I said, the roller coaster, that adrenaline. Oh my God. To, oh, it's not me. Elation adrenaline. Yes. Sit down. They sit down. They're looking around. They're looking for the lamb to the slaughter. Who is it? Oh, I can't wait to watch them fail up there. And they they join. That crowd gets bigger as, you know, more and more people are finding out it's not them. And they're all sat down on their chairs. They're all looking around smiling and looking for that person. And then they finally clock. Ah, oh, there wasn't a sticker. And then I make the obvious remark of there was no sticker under your seats. And none, no one's coming up to sing Suspicious Minds and there's laughter. But the whole point of it is taking them on that journey of I have, com- I have completely removed your control in the situation. Because the only thing, this is where it gets worse from, the only thing you can do next is if it is you during that period of thinking they're going to get picked is the worst thing they can do is go, well, I'm not doing it. And they know deep down that in itself, in front of their peers, they would probably be likely judged more for going, I'm not doing that, to actually going up there and getting embarrassed. So they're in this entire dilemma. I love it. It's like, it's quite sadistic, but it's my way of just putting myself at ease. But they're caught in this dilemma of adrenaline and concern and worry and panic and suspicious minds, because for the rest of the talk, they're then suspicious about me. Um, 
What's to but talk you... about when you do this? Like, oh, it's... I use it in everything. It's like it's my icebreaker. Right. Yeah, I didn't use it for Gareth. I didn't use it at the Football Writers Awards. There's 400 <laughs> here. <laughs> Gary Lineker is will... like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. One of you will come up and do my leadership speech. Um, but but going back to what I said about exposure equals composure and that adrenaline rush before a moment, and then the adrenaline rush after the moment is you use that as an example because quite often I talk about fear. Quite often I'm talking about to, to teams, groups of teams, about comfort zones and then your fear and then how you learn and grow from there. And I use that as a point of reference. I'm like, listen now to how you're feeling because that is what elation feels like. That is mm. the same experience before, just psychologically it's changed because the situation for you has changed. You're not going to be coming up here to sing, but I want you to listen to how your body was feeling and thinking. And it's it, although it's funny and it's an icebreaker, it's nice to explain on the podcast, it, ultimately it's got a reason behind it. It gets them thinking, oh, right. And then you go a deeper level to go, now you're all managers in this room. Let's just say, for example, yeah. you have teams of four or five, six people who experience that on a daily basis. And they're worried about talking to you. They might be worried about engaging with a particular customer. But but getting in there and understanding how they think and actually experiencing how they think, your leadership thinks like that. Your board members think like that. And it's just exposing them a little bit more to these adrenal rushes that we go through when literally caught in these traps and the, these moments but i will leave you with this as well on that point um i delivered a talk up in glasgow to a big construction company and uh there was about 300 people in this auditorium and i started with suspicious minds and um i'm watching the audience all shuffling around looking and i'm and i'm in my head i'm thinking oh they'll all sit down soon and then i can reveal to them that there is no sticker and we're all sat there and looking around the room and then there's this elderly guy walking down one of the aisles towards me holding a sticker <laughs> and i'm like huh <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> it's completely ruined my moment he was like it's me <laughs> and i was like is it it is like yeah i've got a yellow sticker under my seat and i was like oh that's strange and i've had to then explain it on the fly oh no one's caught no it's all it's all a farce. And he was like, oh, so I don't have to sing then. And I, I negotiated with him because then he wanted to sing. I was like, no, go sit back down. So, uh, yeah, it has <laughs> He was trying to pressure you into letting him sing, was he? Yeah. Or there's a, there's a drunk from the night before. If it's like an AGM, <laughs> there's always someone like, oh, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was surprised to see someone walk towards me. <laughs> wow, that's hilarious. So you've got a lot of funny stories, but you also have a lot of darker, more emotional sad stories as well how do you use those in a business context i used to do my talks right at the beginning in too much of a dramatic way like i would overkill the broken wing story like yeah it was horrific and you haven't been there and it's awful and all these things to the point where the audience is going yeah all right we get it and I used to overkill it. Like I've talked very openly about my past with drug problems and suicidal issues and then joining the Marines and then all the things that come with the Marines and like almost made my talks in the early days just a bit too dark. And and I think that's a very easy mistake to make when you're trying to win people over through emotion. You'll either go too comical and it's not funny mm. or you'd be like, yeah, everyone was dead 
and mm. everything was everywhere and I was the only one left and you must all try and feel sad somehow. And that and that's where the imbalance happens. I think you need to give your audience just enough where they're like, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you're saying here. Yeah. And then you pull back. And, and I think it's another it. one of pitching's fine line between compelling story and almost sensationalism. Yes. And if you're not careful, it looks like you're doing something just for the purpose of emotion rather than I've got a really genuine story that's relevant that I'd like to tell you authentically. Mm. And and I, I've struggled with this uh, at definitely at the beginning since leaving the Marines and, and uh, going into public speaking of sorts and way less so now. But, you know, I had some pretty unique life experiences within quite a short space of time before the marines a lot happened there which i've written about a lot happened in the marines and then quite a substantial amounts happened after marines and everyone's got their story and that's why again i can feel myself doing it now like everyone's got their story mine's no better than yours but i what i used to do is try and cram it all in and be like um yeah so i had all these problems joined up then i did all these amazing things and it's quite a it's quite a challenge to get the audience to go, oh, wow, you went through all that and you came out the backside of it and did this? That's really cool. So what I've started to do is just almost like list the amazing points, like they're just bullet points. Like I'll talk a little bit, yeah, it's, you know, I'll talk, depending on the audience, a little bit about my time before the Marines and how I struggled there. I'll talk loosely but in depth about situations within the marines but make it relevant to the audience so they can relate to the experience themselves in some way or another and then i'll kind of list the successes and like yeah and, and since then i've written a book i've worked with england uh, i've i've been online with simon sinek i've been on diary of a ceo and and Danny's <coughs> pitch masters yeah. i was literally about to say it <laughs> yeah absolutely blocked me on that one i was about to say and danny's pitch masters some people don't introduce themselves at all past their name. They say, hi, I'm Danny. And now let's talk about the product. And I think it's an important point to make that no one else so far on Pitch Masters has made, which is making sure in your own introduction that you are not overly humble so that people can hear immediately the kinds of achievements and experience you've got. So you can set them up immediately with some kind of level of credibility and trust in you. It's a really interesting point, and it's something that I contended with for ages, and then I got myself into quite a confident place to be proud. That's a really big part as well about being confident is proud of who you've become or what you've become. I'm just proud that I have two children. Every, everyone, I get it all the time, like, oh, you've been on this, or you've been on that, or you've mm -hmm. done this, you've done that. It's like, it doesn't matter. I've got two wonderful children. That's, you know, once we finish this podcast, I'll close the laptop for the next few hours because when they go to bed i'll get a little bit of time extra in. and we'll go to mcdonald's and we'll just live like normal people and we are normal people and that's what i'm proud of so everything else to me is just it's easy i can be confident about what i've achieved and but not have an like an overinflated ego with it and the reason i want to explain my story to people and get them invested in me is i want you to know that i'm credible but also you can just get on with me and I'm approachable and we can have a conversation. More often than not, most people don't give a shit about your product unless it is like solving your absolute number one problem that you can't sleep 
at all they are just buying a product from you and in the business world most people are just buying products from people uh to to solve probably an issue that they've been told to go and solve you know and i look at this i look at our product i'm so proud of it but it's got a bloody long way to go before i could sit there and be like that is what i imagined it would be from the start and so everyone has to a degree that problem and everyone's got an uphill battle of convincing people of your product value and why you're better than the rest etc but like you said they they buy from people mm-hmm. they, they buy from real people with real stories and it's like the car salesman example if the car salesman is like hey welcome to my car salesman shop um this is this car here it's only got three wheels it's a rust bucket and then sells you the pretty crap car you're on the fence you're like come on your trousers don't even fit you're just trying to sell me something so you can get commission. You, and the car looks like crap. You give me all the spec, all this stuff. But if he gave you a story about how he, humbly he wore, used to be a Formula 3 driver and his passion is cars, he just loves cars. And all his life he's been around racing and he misses it. You know, the emotion, the play of emotion. Mm. I'm a car salesman now. I really miss what I used to do, but... I enjoy seeing people get satisfaction from buying cars from me. And I, I love watching them just drive off the forecourt and carrying on down the road. Even if it's a rust bucket, you're like, oh, take my money. Or like, let's talk a bit further about this thing. It's only got three wheels, but screw it, I'll buy it anyway. It's not the product, it's the person that you're buying from. And I think mm. when people are trying to influence others to do something, you know, what can you give them? You know, don't ask for their money. What can you give them in return? What can I do for you? How can I solve some of your problems? There's there's ways of positioning your product. But before then, let them know that you're a great person. Let them know you're credible. Speak with influence. Speak with authority. Present yourself well, but don't be intimidating. Really, there's something I've really tried to work on is be aware of my body language. Like it's traditional Mm. To, to fold your arms in the marines and always have your your arms folded because you're actually warming your hands most of the time never in your pockets right never in your pockets unless anyone's not looking um <laughs> but you're always trying to trying to hold like warm yourself up and so and the natural pose is arms folded so that's a really comfortable place for me to be but when i'm right. talking to people and i'm like i'm gonna tell you something and i got my arms folded they have to open up and i'm constantly right. working on my body language but Going back to that point is get people invested in you. Don't get them invested in your product. Get them invested in you. Let them like you. Tell your story. Bring your emotion to the conversation of why the widget solves your problem and you love using it because of this and I get more sleep, whatever. But sell that story to that individual through what you are, who you are. They won't care to a degree what the price is or how long the contract is. They'll want to talk to you more. And and this this is, for me, why we have to be so good at what we do at Lupin is I need to pitch to the buyer. But then when I've got the B2B to C, the user, who's going to be checking in how they feel and supporting one another on the platform and doing all these different things to create more cohesive and connected working environments, I need to convince them that they, they need to use the product but I can't sell them the product and go, you must check in. Mm. You must be off private mode because otherwise it doesn't really work that well. I tell you what, I'm going to tell you a story of a time where I had to overcome a really extreme circumstance, something that you all experience yourselves. 
and how it made me feel afterwards. And I felt so good for doing it. Talking about how I felt was a burden lifted and go and take them down that alleyway. And then they go, oh, by the way, you can do this on Lupin. And, and it's just sold indifferently. And I think it's bringing those stories and emotions in that just get people going, I don't really know what they're selling. I just want to be in the room with that person a little bit longer. Mm. So let's talk about Lupin for a second. So you founded it with um, Anthony Thompson, co-founder. Um, he actually messaged me on LinkedIn today. Did he? I said I, I said we were speaking. <laughs> I knew he would. He always chases uh, Tom. If you're listening, stop chasing everyone that I talk to. Anyway. No, I like him. I, I had a good chat with him actually. <laughs> He said, <laughs> "He's like, when's my episode?" <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't say that. He said, "Ask Ben about the time that he booked them into a crack den hotel." <laughs> and I thought, "All right, I'll ask him that one." Right. This is okay. This is a problem we've been having some for some time. You know, you you get some investment in, and you got to watch the funds and all this type of stuff. So I get quite frugal, and back when we we didn't actually have investment but when we first started our original business which was coaching and consulting into into companies leadership development etc um i took the responsibility on one day to book the hotel and it was usually tomo that's his nickname who booked the hotels and i was like mate you relax you chill (laughs) i'll book this one and we were going up to birmingham and um this is why my wife sorts our holidays out as well, because I just do <laughs> I just do Google, I scroll by the ads and then I'll pick the cheapest. Yeah, yeah. And um I saw this this what it looked beautiful to be fair, this hotel, and it was it was like twenty two pounds for the night for the both of us. And I was like, What a deal. I didn't think I didn't think about I didn't mar- I, yeah, I did just didn't marry mar- it up. I was like, What a deal. So I booked it and then we went up to Birmingham. And we um, we went around all our meetings and then someone was like, where are you staying tonight? And I was like, oh, we're staying at, um, what was it called? It was called like, it was even a horrible name. It was like the Ratterton or something. <laughs> and they were like, the where? Was the Ratterton, something like that? And they're like, oh, not heard of that. Where's that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Somewhere we'll put, put it in uh, sat-nav later. And, don't know where that is. Anyway, we pull up to this hotel later that evening. You know, a long day of meetings. You just want to get your head down and go to sleep. And we turned up to this place. I've been in worse places in combat situations than this dilapidated building where we walk through and the reception stunk of shit. And we were, <laughs> that was like the first moment to walk away, but we didn't. And Tomo's going, is this definitely the right place? I was like, yeah, definitely the right place. And the price marries up. So we went over to reception and we parted with our 22 pounds, I think. And they were like, you got two rooms. <laughs> it's like 11 quid a night. We're like, okay. Went upstairs and all these like hotel room doors were open as we we're walking down this corridor, this hallway all open. Like, and then as we walked by, there were like people just sat on their beds and like, they'd look, they'd look out and they were like, all right. And be like, you're right. And then, and every single one looked like prison cells. And we got in our room. There, there was shit in our kettle. There's mold all up the wall. The lights didn't work. And and Tomo's like, really, like, mate? It's a it's a bed for the night. And he was like, okay. So we went out that evening. We came back to our um, wonderful rooms and went to sleep. 
And all through the night, you could hear like banging and shouting down the corridor. I had my, I literally like put a chair up against the door and had my duvet (laughs) right up to my eyes. And you could hear people like screaming at one another. And the next morning, we kind of met at the the corridor. How'd you sleep? So I didn't sleep very well at all. (laughs) And then um, that day, having meetings, we bumped into someone we know and and they're like, Where did you stay last night? We said, This this particular place. And they were like, why did you stay there? And we were like, oh, it's cheap. They were it's like, £11. Pounds. They were like, that's where they take crack addicts off the street to put into rooms so they have a place to sleep for the night. And I, and I was like, that explains a lot now. That makes sense. So, yeah. I thought he would ask a more intuitive question around what would listeners like to know about fear, etc. No, 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 he didn't. But he did ask me one other thing. And then I promise we'll actually talk about Lupin before we close. But I'm, I'm again. I'm just intrigued. He said, "Get him to tell him. Get him to tell you about the merger pro- merger proposal for Gareth Southgate." <laughs> <gasps> oh my god! Oh, this is perfect. I completely, I completely forgot about why this would be of use. I can see why he's told you. Oh, so. We tried to acquire Gareth Southgate. <laughs> I love this story already. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So this is early door. I should use this more often. This is brilliant. I forgot about this. I, I actually found the deck for it the other week as well. I was like, did we actually write this? <laughs> um, so yeah. So through the football network and and doing the talk for Gareth and staying in that network. His agent, Terry, who I've explained about, who's in the book, said, um, oh, like Gareth's thinking about doing some stuff in leadership. (laughs) Thinking about doing some stuff in leadership, like paid talks and like building some model or something. And um, we're like, all right, yeah, okay, mm -hmm, yeah. And Terry's like, well, you guys are quite close to the bone on this one. You've all worked together, you know, football, marine mindset you know is there something we could pull together literally left it at that there was no mention of trying to acquire the england football manager there was no mention of mergers there was no mention of investment and just for people who are still listening and are serious about business this was at the beginning of our business days and we do not write proposals like this at all now so anyway back to the set terry's like just go away lads have a little think about it maybe you know come back and we can talk a bit more about what it could be. And there was talk around like the Duke of Edinburgh awards involved and all this stuff. So me and Tomo left and we're like fist bumping one another down the street. <laughs> like we've just sealed like the mega deal for something. And we're like, mate, I've got it. I know what we're going to do. So we went away. We had planning days over. I don't know what we were ta- taking, you know, maybe that crack hotel seeped yeah. into our blood a little bit. And we're having whiteboard sessions. We're building out this really comprehensive deck around working with Gareth and all these things. And we went, we, we were like, Terry, we've got an idea. Can we come back and show you? It's like, yeah, lads, get yourself to London. Right, bring yourselves down. You can pitch to the team. Pitch, perfect. We actually did. So we're pitching to Terry and all his team who look after Gareth and lots of other famous sports stars. In a room, they're all sat around this boardroom table, TV up. Anthony and I stand up, got our shirts on. We're about to nail it, all right? 
we are about to acquire the England football manager. So, so we're talking and it's shit because we don't know anything about pitching properly and it's really early doors. And we're talking about how our business, which by the way, at the time was called Vanguard Global Solutions <laughs> and was just the two of us and had two businesses to work with. And one of them was my mum's like, and they were both in the UK and they weren't global. So there we are. We're pitching the Vanguard Global Sh- Solutions and Gareth Southgate merger. That was the title. That was the title of the deck. And they must have at that point gone, we fucked up inviting these boys back in. So then we spent the next hour pitching to Gareth Southgate's agency team about the merger between Vanguard Global Solutions, VGS for short, and Gareth Southgate and how we're going to transform the Duke of Edinburgh Awards <laughs> and all grassroots football with leadership development programs. Now, actually, the thesis was really good. The strategy was terrible. And there was, I've got to find it. I'll send it to you, right? I there wanted was, to see this. There was a slide which I don't think David Brent could have made any more <laughs> cringy around how we'd actually... <laughs> pictured the merger of like <laughs> England football and an arrow going to our logo which by the way was a Spartan helmet with a reef around it and a spear going through it beautiful beautiful oh honestly um and we learned very quickly we got ter- Terry rung us back and yeah lads I don't think we're gonna do what <laughs> <laughs> you mean what bitch to- I was like we, Harry, didn't, get- on, we didn't get the deal <laughs> That's brilliant. But if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have learned what bad looks like, what good looks like. That's why we've got to put ourselves in these situations. You've got right? to fail. You've got to fail. Like, if you haven't tried to acquire the England football manager within your first six months of business... Then what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a nice segue, though, because you now run a successful business with a pretty good name and everything. So do tell me more about Lupin. Yeah, so uh, pitching Lupin, which I've become quite good at, not right. pitching myself necessarily, is uh, my our mission at the company is by 2030, um, we'll have a million employees being able to predict and prevent uh, burnout, performance and retention risks through AI. And ultimately what we do is we are a light touch product that takes sentiment analysis, uh, asks you how you are, and we turn that into usable data so we apply that to ai models that between your profile which you set up when you start using the product and how you feel on a regular basis we build up a picture around you that we then help inform your manager of how to have great conversations with you how to lead you effectively when's the next time you need to catch up with them you know if they're stressed how do you deal with an introverted stressed person who works in hybrid and likes to communicate through email, which is everything you get through Lupin. And so layering in GPT before it went global, Mm. we had it in our roadmap to embed that type of technology in to create an AI coach in every person's pocket. So when, if it's just you as a new junior employee, you don't really know anyone in the team, you're a bit not used to Lupin, checking in, what's this all about? We'll pick up on that say, hey, you're pretty disengaged or use privacy. Have you thought about doing this or that? And then we help the manager, we we connect the team through AI. And then ultimately, as we go through the leadership, you know, the overall uh, organization gets to understand itself better. 
on a daily basis as opposed to uh, an irregular or, or dare I say dreaded engagement survey basis and we are confident that as we progress forward over the sort of next six to 12 months we're actually going to revolutionize a space that I don't think anyone really knows exists you know how do you train employees in a hybrid world you know what is well-being what is HR tech you know what is performance and everything and actually how do you begin to bring it together that yes it might sit under multitude of different budgets but ultimately what you're trying to do is connect people better in the workplace and then improve the performance of individuals whether that's the individual employee the manager of a team or a leader of an organization and I'm I'm pretty confident we're we're still early stages, but I'm pretty confident we're heading in a, a particularly um, fascinating direction of how we go and do it. No, that's great, and and I agree with you that it it's an untapped space. I mean, because I think it's it's slowly becoming the focus of or a bigger focus in businesses. And I, I've been a consultant for what fifteen years now. I've seen all kind of bad things, and when someone shows that they are, you know, I've been in pitch situations where the lead person has called in sick on the day. Mm. And I know it's because of stress and pressure because we've all been up for two weeks straight, no sleep, 24-7. Can't compare it to the Marines, but it's stress, right? And they call in sick. They don't say at any point during those two weeks, I'm feeling under a lot of pressure or I'm feeling really vulnerable about this. I'm feeling... Like my anxiety is getting the better of me. They call in sick mm. and then they get a huge black mark on their name because the other guys in the pitch have been totally let down and they all know that that guy's not sick. And it's like, it's just, thankfully, IBM's not like that at all. I got to put that on the record, but I've been in places where it is. It's just a terrible culture. And I think, maybe I'm wrong and you can correct me, but I think it is probably a bigger problem with males as well this yeah. male pride thing you know mm. yeah definitely i it's funny you mentioned that about sick you know again the military you could never call in sick when you're on the right. front line and I, I just to make that point you know I, I get this quite often around okay so where are you really going with this and and, and my point always comes back to the first place we start with all the data we can do, all the AI we can do, you know, and how we leverage those types of platforms and soft uh, technology. But ultimately where we start is with the employees within the teams. And we're far more used to being socially connected these days, whether, whether that's through LinkedIn, even email. Uh, but for most people, it's TikTok, it's Instagram, it's LinkedIn, Facebook. We're used to that way of connecting. So how do you bring an element of that feeling into a product like ours. And the first thing you will see when you go into Lupin is a team activity feed. It, it, it's not a dashboard. It's an activity feed that you can scroll through on your screen and you will see, might say, Danny's feeling low today, stressed, kids didn't sleep. Might see next person, super pumped about the meeting coming up. Now, it takes a while to tap into teams to get them used to that, but in our data, it proves it works. And the more hands-on approach we can have by talks and mentoring, the engagement goes through the roof. It's about trying to secure that psychological safety within each team. Because if you can secure psychological safety, you're going to lower burnout because people can, they feel they can say they're stressed. So they'll say they're stressed and they'll get the support from their peers or the manager they need. 
hopefully, or at least the mm. organization can provide the support. Um, performance will go up, and then actually does because they work harder for the team, they feel more committed. And then retention, you know, people will want to stay longer within teams if they feel that the team hears them and actions taken from any data they submit. And I like to use the Marines for this example. I had a VC, I had two last year. We never really went very far with VCs in the end. I think that's a different story, but I think there has to be chemistry. Um, mm. We, I had two, which actually I really got on with. And, and one of them said to me, oh, you must breeze through being a founder. I was like, what makes you say that? It's like, well, the things you've seen and been through, this this must be like, is it that bad? I was like, it's way worse. I'd rather be in Sangin without a rifle or a helmet or body armor and no team around. That would be a holiday because that stress is acute and it's up and it's down. Mm. It's up. But like you just said, it, and interestingly, you, like, you try to immediately pitch it back to me and go, oh, it's not as bad as the Marines. I was like, it's way worse than the Marines. Marines is really simple. You go to war. You are either going to survive or you're going to die. That's or get injured, right? They're the only two real outcomes, and the idea is to try and avoid the other two and and survive. Um, that becomes very basic. It's quite primal way of living. Mm-hmm. Just survive the situation, and the stress is acute. You're not getting bombed or shot at all the time. So it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, and then you have up cycles. What you've just described is intense periods of prolonged stress that mm. you are just living it. And the person who's running the project is like, we're getting near the day, we're getting nearer the day. Oh my God, the day's arrived, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. And at no point up to that moment was there the ability to share between yourselves, man, this project's killing me, I feel red, but we can support no. one another through it. Doesn't matter if you're red, doesn't matter if you're stressed, you support one another through mm. it. Mm. We, we never, I love the queen, I've said this before, but we never did it for queen or country we did it for one another on the ground. That's all mm. that mattered in the military. And we were paid nothing for doing it. You can take that thesis. People challenge it me all the time. Yeah, but how do you create that in the civilian world? We all want to be part of a tribe. We all want to be part of a community. We have to be able to connect with that community. And more and more teams are getting better at it. We are not white or blue collar anymore. We are extremely diverse organizations where people want to belong. They want to have purpose. They want to come to work and be heard. When we have people chomping at that bit and that way of thinking, you can create the best teams. It's not perfect. Like I say, people will walk, people will chase money, but ultimately you can create those teams. And imagine running those projects from the start where you can understand how each other are and support one another so people don't go on sick on the last day. They don't get that black mark through their name. And you actually have a cohesive team that performs that possibly, I would argue, a higher standard than you would without knowing. I couldn't agree with any of that more. So where can people find out more about Lupin and about your book? So the book, you can find Commando Mindset anywhere. Um, you can go to Penguin's website. You can Waterstones, Amazon, it, Commando Mindset, and it will come up. Um, and then letsloopin.com. I would ask that you all wait a week before visiting our new website, as a classic founder would say. This isn't coming out for a week, so well, hopefully, hopefully you're now <laughs> paused and you've gone to the website. In fact, go to the website right now so you don't forget it. Um, but yeah, let's letsloopin.com. Uh, you can find out more information there. Um, if not, just if connect with me on LinkedIn and we can talk through there. But yeah, the more people we can 
visit and speak to, the, the, the bigger the problem we can solution for. Fantastic. Ben, you are an inspiration and you've made me cry with laughter over the last hour. I, I appreciate you for that. I really do. You, you, you know what you're doing and um, we could chat for a lot longer, but I can't have two hour episodes because no one will listen to them. But there you go. But before, <laughs> before you go, any final words of wisdom for the listeners? I I used to hate speaking in front of people and I especially used to hate speaking in front of my peers as Marines. And I found the more I worked on it, just the better I became at it. And it came down to confidence and confidence. I believe is shrouded in belief. The more belief you can have in yourself, even if you're going to fail at the situation or, you know, you're going to make a bit of an ass out yourself on this pitch don't let that knock your confidence for the next one. Learn from the failures. Learn from what went wrong. Learn from your Gareth Southgate acquisitions and move <laughs> forward. And the greater your belief is, the more confident you'll become. And go in there with confidence, but not arrogance. Go in there with a great ego, but not a bad ego. And let people really understand who you are as a person. I, I naturally have people say to me oh you're amazing you've achieved these wonderful things it's like i'm a normal person which just believes in myself that i can achieve great things within my own life and the three people that benefit are my two children and my wife and we all have amazing stories to tell just you have to dig in and find that story and when you do you'll always win people over and then you can pitch whatever you want to pitch and sell them whatever you want to sell them but find that story be confident believe in who you are box the imposter when you need to and and head forward and i think you'll tap into something completely unique and new that i never knew existed until i really started hammering away at it ben you're a legend thank you so much i appreciate you man thank you very much take care this has been another episode of pitch masters go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for pitch guy on social media for regular videos on sales psychology storytelling creativity and much more 